Hi, I'm Adam Spencer and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. On the episode today, we have... Hi, I'm Darren from EdApp. EdApp is effectively a mobile LMS, so a workplace learning solution uh, that talks directly to learners' devices, learners' smartphones. And just out of curiosity, are you familiar? Because I I'm from Newcastle, uh-huh. and and with there's a company up here called Coassemble, and they do a lot in their LMS space. I think. Are you familiar with those guys? We are. Yeah, definitely. Are they competition? Are they competition? No, no. So they they, they basically look at um, uh, they're they're pretty much just authoring. Yeah. Um. That's that's sort of what they really um focus on, whereas we're a kind of an integrated authoring and delivery platform. And we predominantly specialize, well, the um, platform is primarily aimed at delivery out to mobile devices. Right. So it's deskless workers, really. So before I ask the question, when did you first get involved in the ecosystem? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You had you had the, the digital agency. That's right. So so you spent, you spent a lot of your career working in marketing. Correct. In the fast moving consumer goods sector. Uh, and then you started the digital agency. Yeah which then kind of presented you with the opportunity to start EdApp. I'm just curious, uh, why did you want to jump into a, into the world of startups? Because yeah. it's a very challenging sure. and I'm assuming you had a very successful career and you were making good money. Like what dro- drove you to do that? Sure. Well, I was really interested in, in a global marketing roles and that's what I did predominantly out of the UK. Mm. And in those kinds of roles, I got to see the growth of digital. And at one stage, we might have had, let's say, a dozen what they might call above-the-line agencies producing material, campaign concepts, uh, you know, promotional ideas. And I saw that shift to digital beginning to appear probably in around 2004, 2005. Then with the advent of the iPhone and Steve Jobs unveiling that, you know, it was going to be open to third-party developers, I could see that that was going to be an absolutely enormous area and I wanted to be a part of it and I didn't want to do it with, you know, an existing brand or an existing company, an existing company um, or clients. I wanted to start myself. And so the best way I thought to learn about the space was not to necessarily jump straight into a product-based startup, but instead open a digital agency, hire developers, and build applications and build solutions for top tier clients that would help, I guess, unveil what the problems were in enterprise Mm. and look for the gaps and look for where there wasn't uh, products off the shelf that could solve large problems, you know, that could be very scalable, that could be global. And that's essentially why I started the agency. And um, it, it became enormously successful. We built some of the first banking apps in Australia. We built relationships with most of the, let's say, the top 100 companies um, in Australia. We had, a, you know, the majority of our customers were ASX listed. 
But as I used to say to the teams, that wasn't the end goal. We didn't want to be an agent. We didn't want to be someone that just was a, a gun for hire. What we were doing was using that as a way to really take to market ideas, um, see if we could establish product market fit without even developing the product. So essentially we got invited into the boardrooms of Australia, listened to their problems, and then went away and thought about, okay, we're developing this custom solution for a particular customer, but what are we seeing that's common? What are we hearing? What, what are the, um, the large problems we can solve? And number two, what would we be really passionate about? So we, we looked at probably over the years at Creative License, which started in about 08, probably up until 2013 and 14, we're probably on our eighth idea. And all that was was isolating engineers to one corner of the room who would work on the current project we were looking at and everyone else was working for clients, you know, doing that paid work that would help us all be employed and allow us to keep exploring. Mm. And so really it achieved two things. It achieved we could bootstrap because the agency would pay our bills, albeit, you know, the agency would have to run at, uh, you know, zero profit. But that's where the profits went, was into employing engineers that would work on the side, if you like. And the second thing is it showed us where the gaps were. We had time on our side then to think about what we wanted to do. We were able to um, test. We were able to observe what was going on, who was being successful, what we thought the ingredients for success were. Um, and we knew that we weren't going to go into the consumer space. We knew we wanted to go into, into B2B. And that was the perfect way to get introduced. Why, why did you know that you wanted to go into B2B? Um, I'd seen quite a lot of B2C in my time already and I could see that it was, it was fickle. Consumers, you know, there was lots of, I mean, at the time I think, you know, apps that were sort of coming and going very, very quickly. You know, some of the, the, uh, the gaming guys like Firemint, I'm not sure if you remember those types of companies. Um, you know, the, the makers of Fruit Ninja, people like Half Brick. And I, I didn't have access to that kind of talent. So I knew that games wasn't it. And so then looking out into the, into the rest of the consumer space, um, I wasn't confident that I had the background to be able to execute something that was, um, you know, going to be not only successful, but also would, would you know, last a, a period of time and, and build into a, um, you know, a large profitable business. And I had a lot of background in obviously dealing with international business. And I thought, you know, solving enterprise problems, if we could also solve, you know, some of the world's problems as well at the same time, that would be pretty amazing. And that was one of the reasons why we landed on EdApp eventually. So you were, were you aware of, you know, the startup scene, so to speak, what, yeah. back in when, when you started the agency, the digital agency? Yeah, there was, there was a group in this part of Sydney, the Northern Beaches and Manly specifically, and um, they called themselves Silicon Beach. And their concept, which was a, a really good one, was that, you know, in the same way that San Francisco, if you like, is, is just north of, uh, sorry, Silicon Valley is just north of um, San Francisco, Manly, situated on the northern shore of the harbour, is also very similar and had a sort of similar vibe. Mm. And the, the thinking was, well, could we recruit developers, product managers, designers to come and live on a beach, you know, lifestyle and build an ecosystem just north of Sydney? 
Now, it seemed to have quite a lot of legs and there's, there is a few tech companies have come out of Manly and, and remained there and grown overseas, but their base still be in, in Manly. But really, the, we were just in those days and continually so starved for talent that it would break your heart when you would, you know, find a great candidate, particularly an engineering candidate, get all the way through the process, really, you know, have a fantastic feeling that this person is going to be a great team member and can really add value for someone like Atlassian or someone that's it's only one, you know, one stop from Wynyard or one stop from Central Station, uh, snap them up. And, and the reason was it was the majority of the developers, you know, moving into Sydney if they were international or if they were, if they were students, they did live in that inner city area and trying to convince them to come to Manly where rents were slightly more expensive and, you know, a bit further away from the city, it was just too challenging. And so ultimately that group, Silicon Beach, whilst it, it made some good progress, um, it never really progressed into becoming one of the premier startup groups uh, of the city. Roughly what uh, year was that? So this would have been from around, you know, 2010 uh, up to probably 2015. Right. Uh, was there anything else that that you were that was visible to you in terms of because because as I think I mentioned, two thousand and twelve seems to be about the year that things really started to ramp up. Yeah, we we were aware of um, of the various startup hubs, and I think we saw the emergence of of groups like you know um, Blue Chili comes to mind, and some of the the sort of startup lab offerings. Mm. It was really pre co-working space that was much later and the ideas of, of i guess i think bringing entrepreneurs together to work in the same premises were probably a little bit later at least they were certainly in manly but but you know we certainly saw the growth of the angel investors there were um yeah the the kind of groups that i mentioned like silicon beach that you know the meetup scene had started and people had began sharing ideas um, so that was about the extent that we saw in, in you know this part of northern Sydney. Two thousand and so, EdApp started two thousand fifteen. It did, yeah. So it, it yeah, it began um, as a product called Campus, and and we really saw in around you know two thousand and thirteen fourteen we began to notice that education, frankly, adult education was broken, and we we could see that in the way that salespeople actually is where we first saw it, the way that salespeople were being trained. And that began to open our eyes up to education in general when we began to see how few adults post-secondary high school or university actually go on to complete any other training at all in their lives. We were we were shocked. And that's where we began the idea of, of putting out a um, training platform designed specifically for mobile that mm-hmm. took advantage of micro moments of a day and not relying on you know a ninety or sixty minute block, but something that could be achieved in just a few minutes um, with at much higher frequency. Uh, we began to see that that you know could really have um, application in in business around the time that the bring your own device movement really started to take on, and and you saw more and more organisations being happy for people to use their own devices at work. And um, we simply tested the idea with an existing client who did have a very large remote sales team. And um, as I say, it was simply a matter of building a relationship with the 
with that particular client, taking them on a bit of a journey and saying, look, you know, would, would your salespeople be interested in, in testing something for us? And once we started hearing back from, you know, people that weren't looking to buy, people that were actually contracting us for something completely different, once we heard them saying, look, our sales team want to talk to you, they actually think this is pretty good and they've asked about how much it costs, et cetera, then we started to realize that, that um, we, we had a potential winner here. So 20, around the 2015 time when you guys started, mm-hmm. how easy or hard was it to get the funding that you needed uh, to launch EdApp? Yeah, so I, I knew that I wanted to, um, and look, <laughs> potentially um, maybe it was the incorrect thinking, but I, I thought that I had access to a fantastic, let's call, let's call it user base in existing customers. I had a revenue stream coming in from the agency. Um, I had access to fantastic developers. We knew what great product looked like because we'd built so many. At that time, I really felt like I wasn't going to go down the traditional VC route. I didn't want the, the pressure that sometimes comes from some of those relationships. Of course, not all the time, but I really wanted to be in control and not have to make any decisions based on finance. And so we were very lucky that the agency continued to do well, which as I say, enabled us to pay developers in lieu of making profit. And so my view was always that I would bootstrap until I had some critical mass and was then in a much better position, you know, to go and raise money. And I knew then that raising money wouldn't be difficult if we had an audience, if we had you know, evidence of very little churn um, and, you know, what we were able to achieve from a small uh, office in Manly versus what would happen if we were truly to take it global. And that is exactly what happened. You know, we did find that we attracted attention the more and more clients we had to sign up and the more sh- more signs of growth we had. Then really that put me in a much better position um, to be able to talk to various parties that were interested in in funding um, or indeed acquiring EdApp. When you started EdApp, did you always know that you wanted to exit? Was that always the plan for you? I, I don't think so. It, it, was, it was mainly, you know, I was working in a very large corporate in around 2007, um, you know, a FTSE 100 company. I knew that I didn't want to, you know, have to wait for my boss or my boss's boss to give me a promotion to, you know, be able to move on this sort of upward trajectory. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a part of the very typical uh, corporate journey. And so I wasn't seeing starting a product as, you know, the potential for an exit. I was really seeing it, to be honest, as the as a, as a career choice and as a, as a way to, I guess I would probably honestly say as a lifestyle so that I could be in charge and direct a, a product and you know, hopefully have real impact and, and being able to be in control of where that impact would be. So I really didn't want to stay in the very large global. At that time I was in FMCG and I didn't want to, I don't know, be at the behest of the, of the winds of the company. I wanted to be in control and I thought, you know, we could really make a difference. And it was an exciting area as it still is. But I mean, in, you know, in 2007, when, you know, around that time when Steve Jobs started talking about, you know, the SDK, obviously that was a, a time of enormous excitement. And I could see that smartphone 
um, penetration was still so small in enterprise and knew that we could ride that wave. So I wasn't thinking exit. I, I was thinking, um, yeah, it, it was a passion. It was something that, that I wanted to do personally. Um, and of course, I knew that we would be successful, even within the agency. It was something that, you know, we could, I knew I could build a very successful business doing it. But I, but I guess we weren't thinking exit at the beginning. How did you know you could build a really successful? And actually, first, by the way, congratulations on the on the sale. Like to to build build a company and, and sell in in five years for 40, 40 million was it? That's it. Yeah. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. What gave you that level of confidence to know you could build a successful business? I think I'd seen working both here in Australia and then abroad for uh, close to seven years. I think. It was a fantastic school in business and I, and I do recommend that, you know, when I'm talking to, you know, university grads that look, jumping straight out into a startup and into a small team is enormously useful and, and can be enormously inspiring and, and you will be able to often skip, if you like, some of the elements of corporate life that people don't enjoy. But I was extremely lucky in that I got to a global position very, very quickly and was able to achieve, I guess, a real um, overview of international business. And I was able to jump from uh, category to category and see the, the, the real drivers um, for you know various products and various categories around the world. And um, it did allow you a sense of uh, optimism that you could see what really worked and you could see what you could really improve. And, and you know, even in those days, I think the, the needs of enterprise in this space were so clear that I was very, very confident that we, were, we would be able to build a business around it. That was sort of never in dispute. I, I, I remember I was, the first thing we did when we came back to Australia was actually sailed up to the Sundays and, and lived on a boat up there for six months with our 18-month-old. And that's really where the business was born. And I remember just flying back to Sydney for, uh, I think it was a wedding. And, you know, I think I went out to a, a super rugby game and uh, an ex-colleague had learnt that I had jumped out into the digital space and was almost briefing me, you know, in the stands on a Saturday afternoon. So it was never in doubt that that what we were doing was was in demand and that was going to be profitable and therefore you know, going to enable us to to look at a longer term project while we were doing it, which was the key. Fast forwarding to to modern day, drawing on your vast experience in in the space, what, what do you think some of the biggest gaps are that exist in the ecosystem or the community today? I think in terms of gap, I think one of the one of our problems, one of our issues, I think, is is as entrepreneurs is actually that we just don't network enough. And we, I think it, it could be some of our Britishness sometimes for, for some of us that we're definitely not as outgoing, as dependent on network as our American counterparts. In my experience, American startups talk earlier, they talk more, they are more willing to share. I think they help each other out an awful lot. They're happy to give introductions. I think sometimes in the Australian startup scene, again, it comes back from some of that 
playing cards close to your chest until you think you've got this perfect product and then and then laying it out there is not enough i don't think impetus on on helping and on yeah that networking element i do think it's a little bit still you know everyone versus everyone whereas that's certainly not the case in the us i think that's that's one thing that without talking about government legislation and and some other things we could talk about government policy and the like i do think we have to sort of go back to um evaluate how early we share and you know when was the last you know three other entrepreneurs you spoke to maybe not in your space but you know even in the last 12 months um that you lent assistance to and at a very early stage in the co-working spaces yes there's there, there is some uh, there is some discussion and, and there is some level of um networking but i still think our default in australia is one of let's say privacy and hush versus you know shouting from the rooftops and letting everyone know what you're up to and and being open to um take advice from others and indeed give it uh, speaking of, you know talking about advice what one piece of advice would you give a brand new founder i think related to that my advice would be to talk to as many people as you can to not be uh too reserved not don't fall into the trap of wanting to you know if you like oh you know we're still in stealth mode you know it it it's really not helpful you will find you will gain much more from as many networking opportunities as you can um it's very very hard to execute an idea there's lots of ideas but executing on them is the is the crucial thing so don't be too concerned about sharing you know what you're up to um i would also encourage them to you know begin with the end in mind so if you're i i talk to a lot of startup founders that think okay well what i'm going to do is i'm going to get my business to this stage and then i'm going to go and talk to a vc well i think what they should be doing is actually talking to the vc now and saying to the vc the angel or whoever it is our goal is to achieve x would that be enough for us to then have a conversation about taking it further or what would we need to do to achieve to take it further and i think that's something that that doesn't happen enough where people actually say well okay what is the actual goal it's not just i'm going to launch i will see what happens and then i will go and try and talk to some people that can maybe take me on the rest of the journey i think you can do all of that even before you know you press enter on the last line of code i i think you can have those conversations much much earlier and i think it's something sometimes entrepreneurs in this ecosystem are a little bit reluctant to do with the last couple of minutes that we have here and i you know i wish i'd scheduled more time with you because i would have loved really i do want to go into that uh ed app story more mm-hmm. this last question i just want to get your you know give you a couple of minutes to just talk about something that's on your mind keeping in mind that we're trying to create a documentary here that chronicles the history of the Australian startup ecosystem mm-hmm. and we want founders we want people from all corners of the ecosystem to hear this story mm-hmm. what would you want to tell them i think that there is an emerging idea that i think has is is not often spoken about which is that potentially 
the ability for the Australian startup scene and, and those that are quite successful in the startup scene could actually dramatically help out some of the rest of the scene with direct investment. And I think EDAP is a great example of that where safety culture, arguably, you know, a top five Australian startup has actually made the, not only two rounds of funding with EDAP, but actually made a full acquisition. And I do feel like the VC route um, is not always, the, you know, the only route that's that should be considered. And I do think we have a number of very large, successful scale-ups now in Australia that could also be seen as potential partners in growth, whether that be an investor or uh, in a final acquisition. Thank you so much for your time, David. But, uh, just a quick follow-up to that, that, that just for pure research purposes, can you list off some of the, those large scale-ups that, that come to mind? So I don't think there's any, any doubt that, you know, Atlassian has, has been acquiring companies as a, as a way to grow. And you can look at the acquisition of Trello there as an example. Mm. Um, obviously, we've got Canva who have made a number of acquisitions. Safety Culture, as I mentioned, um, there would be three straight away that I would think about that the, op- the, the opportunity for a small startup to be acquired and to produce a product that also talks to their audiences um, I think is a yeah a fantastic opportunity. Thank you so much for your time today, Darren. No worries. Yeah, I'd love to at some point in the future do a story on EDUP for Welcome Today One, which is I've been doing Welcome Today One since the end of 2018, just doing founder stories and startup stories. But this documentary is taking up all of my time. Wow. Uh, so I so yeah, the founder stories have taken a bit of a backseat at the moment. Sure. But yeah, no, it's it's a great story. We've just even this morning I stand up. I took my team through three use cases that came in uh, over the weekend where people are using our product. You know, someone's someone's using our product to, to educate on female genital mutilation in North Africa, and so far they've only been on the platform a month and they've educated thousands of people in thousands of people and mainly women in remote areas throughout Africa. That's awesome. It's just fascinating. They're trying to break down, you know, some religious norms and some things there. We had someone yesterday, the UN is a big client of ours, Unitar. Yeah. Um, and they've released a new course on HIV awareness, which is being rolled out to hospitals. It's incredible the amount of, there's, a, there's um, another small company, it's a consultant, and she started a very popular series on parenting. And rather than releasing it as a book, she's released them as micro lessons on our platform mm-hmm. that then, you know, ping your smartphone once a day and you sort of can refresh yourself on dealing with your difficult child or whatever it is. And, um, yeah, I was actually saying it to our engineering team, just the importance about what they're building. Yes, you know, there's lots of enterprise using our product, but there's an awful lot of people using it for, for good across the world. So, yeah, it's, it's really good. I saw the stat, 50,000, I don't know how outdated that stat was, but 50,000 lessons a day. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. It's getting pretty amazing. And and the growth is just, I mean, obviously COVID's been a huge accelerator for us. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. And, and just as you grow, you know, people talk about the hockey stick, but it's just, it's now, we, you know, there was a day, I guess, what, in 2018, I probably knew all our customers' first names. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and now you're at a stage where, you know, I wake up and one of our team in New York has said, oh, this has just been, this has just launched and this is what they're using the platform for. And it's, you know, teaching math in a 
underprivileged school. It's someone I talked to last week. She's in the Dominican Republic and she's using EDA out in um, sugarcane plantations to talk to Haitian people that think basically that they belong to the plantation owner. So it, they're actually going out with an anti-slavery anti message because the perception from the Haitian is that this Dominican landowner owns them and because they house them and all that, that sort of thing and they brought them across from Haiti, that they belong to this Dominican Republic, you know, plantation owner. That, that's happening today. That is happening right now. Wow. And they just don't, they don't understand human rights. They're very poorly educated. And they, come, they get promised land in the, sorry, they get promised work in the Dominican Republic. And off they come and they, because they're boarded and given food, you know, three times a day and they work in the sugarcane fields. Their assumption is that, yeah, they, they belong to that, that plantation. Wow. Isn't it, isn't it amazing? There are girls, you know, again, with absolutely no understanding of, you know, even the age in which they should be uh, reproducing in the same market, in the same area again, the Dominican Republic. They're having to educate young girls on sexual health and their rights as a young female. It's just, it's just remarkable. But we can get to them, you know, that they used to not be able to get to these people at scale. Yeah. And now they're able to go out into the field. There are these, you know, cheaper Android devices everywhere. And we have an offline mode so that doesn't use a lot of data and these field workers can go out and actually do it at scale. So yeah, it's really amazing. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.